together to the book of Matthew, chapter 3. Now, as you're turning there, I just want to highlight that book that Mike pointed to, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Um, This is a book that several years ago, the pastoral team, we read together. And I can tell you, not only is it the best and most accessible book on the topic of the Trinity, I consider it one of the better Christian books written on any topic. And so if, if you are maybe like most Christians, you hear that title or that topic and you're like, way too heady, let me go to a devotional. I would encourage you, that's going to surprise you. I would encourage you, get a copy, read it devotionally along with scripture, pray and watch God grow your awe and wonder and worship of him. Now, just to define our terms, and Mike has already done a good job of that, when we say Trinity, we're meaning the triunity of God. There's one God, and one God is three persons, revealed in the Bible as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Whether you've been a Christian for many years or a brand new Christian like Mike, we can all admit that there are, that the, God's word is never going to be something that we fully, completely grasp and understand in this life. We're always growing in his word. We're always learning. Some things are easier to grab than others, and I think probably at the top of most people's list, the difficult stuff, the Trinity is right there, right? To, to understand, if you've ever tried to explain the Trinity to your children, you know what I'm talking about, and you're like, wow, that is kind of confusing, isn't it? So we, we could be tempted. With that, we could be tempted to say, well, we can't really fully understand it anyway, so, so why bother? Why don't we go on to more helpful, practical things? Well, the first caution there is God wants his church to think deeply because it's in thinking deeply and knowing the truth that it makes its way to our hearts and it informs our worship and praise and joy. Maybe some would say, well, you know, let's just stick to the gospel. And of course, I'm always going to amen that. But it's, it's a false dichotomy to say, well, the Trinity is not involved in the gospel. Because without fully uh, exploring the Trinity, without including the Trinity, we're not going to get the gospel. Because you're not going to fully get who God is and what he has done and why he has done it. In his book, Michael Reeves writes this, because the Christian God is triune, the Trinity is the governing center of all Christian belief. The truth that shapes and beautifies all others. The Trinity is the cockpit of all Christian thinking. And then he says, God's triune being makes all his ways beautiful. For it is only when you grasp what it means for God to be Trinity that you really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. That's my goal today in this message. Not not that we would try to explore every nuance and, and logically grasp every aspect of the triune God, but rather we would just take a moment, stop, and look deeply into this beautiful, awe inspiring triunity of God 
so that we would know his love for us and so that we would grow in our joy-filled worship of him. That's my goal today. Now to get there, we're going to touch on three quick aspects of that. The unity of God's nature, the triunity of God's person, and why these things matter. So first, let's read Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, and then we're going to pray and ask for the Lord's help. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom... I am well pleased. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself in your word. We thank you that you have given us minds to comprehend and hearts to believe. But Lord, we are also quick to ask for your help because we cannot do these things in our own strength. But through the power of the Spirit, we know we can. So would you meet us now and grow us in you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning, we're we're going to be looking at different passages of Scripture instead of anchoring in just one. But I'm I'm starting in Matthew 3 because Jesus' baptism is one of the rare places in the Bible where we see described and identified the persons of the Trinity in one place at one time in one passage. At the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, as you know, before he began preaching and doing miracles, he was in the wilderness, he was tempted by the devil, and that just before that, Jesus was baptized. He went to the Jordan and John the Baptist baptized him. Jesus said this must be done to fulfill all righteousness. Part of what he meant by that is Jesus came as a man to live in perfect obedience to the Father so that he could take on the sins of man and therefore reconcile us to the Father. So Jesus' baptism is a picture of Jesus in his central role of that mission as fully man and fully God. Now, along with God the Son in this passage, we also see God the Holy Spirit, don't we? Who descends as a dove upon Jesus. Now, that does not mean a literal bird landed on Jesus in that moment, but it it means that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus softly and gently and without fanfare. And then we see God the Father, or rather hear him say, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So see the picture. The Son is baptized. The Spirit descends. The Father speaks. One God, three persons, revealed together in one place in one time. 
Now, for us to, for us to really grasp the, the impact of this moment, and of moments like this in Scripture, we need to kind of back up the train a little bit and remember how God has revealed himself to his people in the Old Testament. And so our first stop on that is this, the unity of God's nature. God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now you've likely heard that, maybe memorized that. In Jewish circles, this is known as the Shema. This is, this is a very important prayer. It's, it's the foundation of their belief in God. It's the foundation of how God has revealed himself in the Old Testament. It's likely one of the very first scriptures that a young Jewish child would memorize. More than just a, a statement, it is a royal proclamation. Everyone, hear and rejoice. Your God, the Lord, is one. Yahweh, the one true God, he is our God. That's the proclamation. The maker of heaven and earth and all that is in it, he alone rules and reigns over all creation. He is sovereign in authority. He is perfect in character. He is holy and transcendent, altogether other. He is unmatched in majesty. And undefeated in power, unrivaled and unequaled. There is no one above him. There is no one like him. He alone is God. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God, Isaiah 45. There has always been only one God. Eternal God. With no beginning and with no end. And there will always be only one God. Kings will rise and fall. Armies rise and fall. Men rise and fall. But God remains. Men throughout history who have tried to pretend they are divine are always proven wrong, proven to be mortal and return to the dust. But Yahweh remains over them all, ruling and reigning, unmoved, and unchallenged and unchanged. He alone is God. This proclamation that the Lord is one is not only God is one in number, but that God is one in unity. Meaning, there is no contradiction in his character. He's not splintered. He's not segmented. Unlike us who who, who can be confused in who we are. God is not confused in who he is. He's not confident one day and racked with anxiety the next. He's not at peace one day and then plagued with anxiety and worry. He is perfectly complete, lacking nothing, needing nothing. He is independently sufficient and powerful and joyful and content in himself and all by himself. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. In our statement of faith, it says there is only one true and living God who is infinite in being, power, and perfections. God is eternal, independent, self-sufficient, having life in himself with no need for anything or anyone. God is perfectly united in his attributes, 
So that when we see in the Bible, God is love, it does not mean that God is only love or that only what God does is loving. That means God perfectly embodies love itself. And when the Bible says that God is just or holy or righteous, it doesn't mean God is those things in different times and space. It means that God is always just and always holy and always righteous, not fragmented parts of who God is, Not that God only acts justly, but he perfectly embodies justice. Not that he just acts merciful, but he is mercy. And those attributes are never in conflict with one another. God is the perfect embodiment of love and holy wrath at the same time. God is the perfect embodiment of mercy and justice. Never in conflict, always in perfect harmony with himself. All that God is, is complete and perfect and good. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, we could stop there and we could praise him for the rest of our days, right? But there's more. We need to consider now the triunity of God's person, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Moving to the New Testament again, 1 Corinthians 8 says this, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." So while there is only one God who is perfectly united in his nature, we see clearly there are three distinct persons. Our statement of faith again. The only true God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, infinitely excellent and all-glorious. Each person is fully God, sharing the same deity, attributes, and essential nature. Yet there is but one God. Now, if you've been part of the church, if you've been a Christian any length of time, you know there have been lots of attempts made using analogies and illustrations to try to comprehend or even teach others what the Trinity is like. Maybe you've even used some of these illustrations, like the Trinity's like a three-leaf clover. Three leaves, but one plant. Well, that's a valiant effort, but that falls short because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not each one-third God. Or how about the analogy of water? Water comes in three forms, liquid and solid and gas. But if that's the comparison, that will eventually lead us to the heresy of modalism, which teaches that God appeared through history in different modes or forms, like he appeared as Father in the Old Testament, as Jesus in the Gospels, as the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. But that's wrong because the Father, just as the Father is eternally God, so is the Son, has always been God, always will be, and so is the Spirit. Or maybe one more example. Maybe the Trinity is like the Son, like The sun is a star, and it emanates light and heat. Oh, that that could work 
No, it can't, because the star creates that light and heat, and that leads to the heresy of Arianism, saying Jesus is not God. Like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is not God. He is a creation of God and therefore could not be fully God. And so none of these analogies are, are accurate. At, at, at best, they're unhelpful. At worst, they are heretical. So if, you, if you're waiting on me, okay, now here's the good one. I'm sorry to disappoint. There's not one. There's not a good analogy. And I think that's okay. In fact, I think that's appropriate. Now, he, here is a helpful statement. A friend told me that as, as he was explaining the Trinity to his kids, that this is what he shared. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. One God, three persons. Now, it's, it gets that simple and it stays that complicated. Because again, this is a mystery. There is no comparison. There is no comprehension of our finite minds to wrap around this. But God saw fit to reveal himself, to show us who he is, as he is, Father, Son, Spirit. And God is helpful to show us throughout Scripture, as he is one, we also see distinct persons playing unique roles. For instance, in creation, the Father spoke, the Son enacted, and the Spirit hovered over the earth. In salvation, we know the Father chooses us, the Son redeems us, the Spirit dwells in and seals us. We see that even in how God relates to himself in distinct roles. The Father sent the Son, and the Son pointed glory back to the Father. Then as the Son ascended, he sends the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit points glory back to the Son. Perfect unity, distinct in function. Now, that can get really confusing in our prayers, can't it? You ever been praying and your mind just kind of takes a vacation and you say, Dear Father, thank you for dying on the cross. Jesus, thank you for sending your Son. It happens, but sometimes we, we need to re-engage and, and understand what we're saying. And some people kind of get a little antsy in our prayers like, I think this is a good question. Should we pray equally to the Father and the Son and the Spirit? Is that appropriate? I would suggest to you not only pro appropriate, but good and biblically accurate. Because as much as God is one and distinct in person, the bottom line is, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. And we are to worship and praise the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We sang it this morning. Praise, praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the Spirit, three in one. Oh, praise Him. Statement of faith, it reads. In the works of creation, providence, and redemption, the persons fulfill roles consistent with their eternal relations. The Father originates, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit completes. Nevertheless, the three, thus distinct, are neither divided nor mixed and are one and the same essence, are equal from all eternity, and are worthy to be worshipped as the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there is 
much more we could say about this. But we are going to get, in later sermons, we're going to get into the work of Christ, the work of the Spirit. So for now, let's transition and take a moment to hit our third point. Why does this matter? Maybe you've been thinking that this whole time. Why does this matter? How does this make a difference in my life? I think the statement of faith helps summarize an aspect here. The Godhead thus exists in a perfect unity, indivisible as to nature and substance, yet inseparably distinguished as persons, here it is now, who enjoy a fullness of fellowship and love. It's this fellowship and love between Father, Son, and Spirit that are so striking. One of the most compelling prayers in the Bible is found in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer as it's known. Jesus knows his time for crucifixion is quickly approaching, and so he prays this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So here here we have it. Jesus came to earth not only to die for our sins, but he came to open our eyes to the Father. The intimate knowing of the Father, Jesus says, is the essence of salvation and eternal life. This isn't just factual and, and theological. This is beautiful. It's beautiful because in this we see the perfect love, the perfect unity, the intimate relationship between the Father and the Son, and that affection is shared with you and me. In this glorious relationship, to, to witness what Jesus just prayed, his relationship to the Father, shows us how and why we can relate to God as father as well. Think think about this. A father has offspring. If God was only one in person and with no son, we could not know him as a father, right? But by virtue of God having a son and by us knowing and trusting in his son, we know the father as our Father as well. Isn't that wonderful? Michael Reeves again, he says this, our definition of God must be built on the Son who reveals him. And when we do that, starting with the Son, we find that the first thing to say about God is, as it says in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in one God, the Father. And if God is a Father, then he must be relational and life-giving. And that is the sort of God we could love. Now, I realize many people, when they hear the word father, it doesn't create pleasant images. Perhaps your earthly father failed you, abused you, abandoned you. So to hear Father God can sometimes feel more like a disconnect for you. 
But let me encourage you this morning. Jesus came to redeem. And he came to redeem that as well. As many earthly fathers or mothers or pastors or husbands or wives who have failed, God never has. And Jesus is opening our eyes and drawing our attention to him and our identity in him and our affection rooted in him. Not that when we get hurt, it hurts any less, but at the end of the day, we are not decimated wondering who we are. Are we loved? Are we lovable? Because God has said, yes, you're mine. That's through Jesus. Father, Son, Spirit, loving you. And when we see this love between the Father and the Son, we're shown this clear picture of the kind of love God has for us. So now remember, remember how Jesus did this. He came as a man, therefore he's able to reconcile man to the Father. By Jesus taking on flesh, he lived in perfect obedience to remedy our disobedience. Jesus hung on the cross as a man and paid for our sins, our sins. Jesus rose from the dead to defeat death and seal victory for us in our place, our substitute. But that's not only in redemption. That's also in reconciliation, the great exchange, as it's called. We give our sins to Jesus. He gives his righteousness, right standing, right relationship with the Father to us. His prayer in John 17 again, Jesus says, The glory, praying to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, meaning the church, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in you, or I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. Now hear this, and loved them even as you loved me. You catch that? Does that feel profound yet? Maybe not. Jesus just said, Father, I have shown them your love so that as they are loved, the love that you have for them, the church, is the love you have for me. Think about that. The Father loves Jesus with a perfect, full, complete, joyful, unchanging, never-ending love. Right? And those in Christ, the Father has the very same perfect, full, complete, joyful, unending, never changing love for you. 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The Father loves the Son. And because of Jesus, the Father loves us just as much because we're his children too, adopted in Christ. And remember the words we started with in Matthew 3. Remember the words the Father spoke over the Son at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
Do you know the Father says the same thing about you? Those who are in Christ, he looks at you. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Now this morning, that might feel strange. We, if we're honest, that's hard to believe. That's hard to swallow. God pleased with me. He knows me. He knows my sin. He knows my thoughts. I don't even feel worthy to sit here. Well, in yourself, you're not. Neither am I. But in Christ, we are. We stand in his righteousness. And the love that the Father has for Jesus is the love he has for you. Jesus knows we're going to struggle with this, and so he sends us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to open our eyes, to open our minds, to open our comprehension, to cause us, even in the things we can't comprehend, to give us faith to believe and to trust what God says is true. And one of those things is you, if you're in Christ, you are a child of God. The spirit inside you right now is convincing you of that, helping you know it is true. Galatians 4 puts it this way. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Abba is an intimate word of close relationship. The spirit inside of us reminds us that God is not only the father, he is your father. By faith in Christ, we are adopted into his family and we are loved and we are cared for and we are treasured and we are kept. Amen? No one can take us out of his hand. Nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing you do can make God love you any less because his love for you is not based in your performance. It's based in his grace. And there is nothing you can do that can cause God to love you anymore because he already loves you with the love he has for Jesus. Full, complete, perfect, overflowing love. Now, if that love is overflowing, where does it overflow to? It overflows to one another. John 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Here we see the rubber hits the road, the practical of seeing the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, the perfect relationship, the submission, the leadership inside that perfect relationship. We see a picture of the home when we see the Trinity, don't we? We see the Son, who is equally God, submitting to the Father in perfect unity and love. And therefore, in marriage, we see a picture 
of husbands and wives, equal in value, yet different in function. Wives graciously submitting while husbands humbly lead. And it's no secret, the world is attacking, the devil is attacking this understanding, not only of gender, not only of marriage, this is a full-on attack on the person of God. See that connection, church. See the importance of this. But know this, as you display the love of Christ in your homes, in your marriages, in your parenting, in your singleness, you are displaying the wonderful person and glory of God to the world. And that's obviously a beautiful picture in the church. Because Father, Son, Spirit, there is no infighting between them. There is no clashing of convictions. They're in perfect unity. And from that, we are not only encouraged, but we are empowered to walk in unity and love as his church with one another. Now, in all of this, aren't we grateful? Aren't we thankful that God loves us so much that he would reveal himself to us. Not only as sovereign ruler and righteous judge, although he is that, but that he would reveal himself to us as God our Father. And because he wants to make his people his own, he sent God the Son to redeem us. And because he wants us to grow to know him and love him more, he indwells in us God the Holy Spirit. So this morning, church, God is inviting us and every day to stop and to look deeply into the mystery of our triune God, recognizing his beauty, marveling in his majesty, And what results from that is we'll expand our understanding of who God is. It will humble us afresh with awe and wonder. It'll breathe new life into our worship. It'll deepen our joy and our affection for Christ and his church. And it will remind us just how much we are loved. Let's pray. Lord, we... No, these have been deep waters that we have been swimming in this morning. But we've we've been held up by you. And Lord, I pray for my heart as I pray for my dear friends here. That Lord, you would increase our joy in you today. Our delight in you. Even if our understanding may lag behind, that Lord, we would trust that we would believe, that we would be in awe, that the more we know of you, the more we know we need to know of you. And the more you reveal, the more we love. May we find our identity in you today, Jesus, and be freshly grateful that we are yours. It's in your name we pray. Amen.